0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Lily Gorin, and today I am joined by Doug Kreiner, and sadly not Eric Schickler because we couldn't get his microphone to work, to discuss their new book, Investigating the President, Congressional Checks on Presidential Power, published in 2016 by Princeton University Press. This book has won two impressive awards, um, one from the President's and Executive Politics Section of the American Political Science Association, and one from the Legislative Studies section of the American Political Science Association. It's a very impressive um, award feat there. Um, And so the book itself is is about investigating the president, but – it's something obviously that we are paying a lot of attention to at the moment, um, as a daily sort of intake of commentary in the media about various investigations of our current president. Um, and of course, there have been many investigations over the years of previous presidents. Um, Kreiner and Chickler are exploring not so much the immediate investigation into the current president but the process and capacity that the United States Constitution provides to explore and investigate potential wrongdoing by a president in office. The book examines these processes as we understand them, from congressional committee investigations to the appointment of special counsels to the judicial role in decisions about the procedures and processes. But the book also provides a plethora of examples that help to highlight how the investigations actually work. Where partisan pressure contributes to the process, what role the media, voters, and other politicians play in the in the investigative process? But I will certainly let Doug um, explain a bit more about all of these aspects of the book. First, though, I would like to welcome Doug Kreiner to the New Books Network podcast. Um, And though it's not his first time here, I would like to ask him to tell us a little bit about himself, um, his co-author and also how they came to this project.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Lily. I really appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> so my name is Doug Kreiner. Uh, I recently uh, joined the political science department at Penn State. Uh, Eric Schickler, my colleague, of course, is a professor and chair of the political science at Berkeley, uh, Department of Berkeley. Uh, and the way in which this project sort of came about, um, actually its roots go all the way back to when I was in graduate school. Um, when we read May Use Divided, We Govern, there's the second chapter in investigations, and it's one that sort of No one really pays too much attention to. Sort of ironic given that Mayhew argues in the book that investigations are one of the most consequential things that members of Congress do uh, as an institution. I was like, wow, that's kind of interesting. We don't really seem to give it too much empirical scrutiny. Uh, So I wrote a paper with a graduate school colleague, William Schwartz, uh, that came out in LSQ. uh, And in the process of doing that, you know, sort of had conversations with Eric, just picking his brain and talking about it. And years later, we decided to pick this up and do something a lot more with it. Uh, And so we came up with the idea of trying to build uh, a much bigger data set of congressional investigative activity as opposed to focusing only on those high profile publicity probes, as Mayhew calls them. And then once we had this dataset of more than 100 years of congressional history, we're thinking about all the different questions that we might be able to answer with it. and So the book uh, just kind of evolved out of that uh, long, slow process.
0: So you've been interested in investigation and to some degree scandals for a long time, it sounds like. Uh, Yeah, I guess that's a little weird, but yeah. (laughs) So you and Eric craft the book as an analysis and an assessment of the power of Congress in particular to investigate the executive branch, not just the executive branch, but also and including the president. But it's more than this, as you note in the book. It's about the institutional power of the national government, which don't operate in a vacuum. So can you give us an overview of the broad thesis of your book with regard to the institutional power, especially from Congress? And the capacity to check or evaluate the use of power and operation by the executive branch?
1: Sure. So I think it's a common trope, uh, both in political science and in sort of more punditry political analysis that presidential power is expanding dramatically. And when we look at Congress's capacity to push back against presidential power, uh, it's fundamentally limited uh, for all of the reasons that we know, sort of Congress's legislative bailing, supermajoritarian requirements, transaction costs, et cetera. Uh, so it's really hard for Congress to legislatively push back uh, against the executive branch. Sometimes it does, but more often than not, it's going to fail. Uh, investigations are something that don't have many of those same costs. It's much easier for a handful or even one entrepreneur within Congress to really provide the motive force to get an investigation going. Uh, So it's something that Congress is able to do. It can investigate even when it can't legislate. Um, So then the question that we have to ask ourselves is, does this investigative power amount to anything? Is it just another example of congressional grandstanding, or is it a tool with which Congress is able to really do political battle with the president uh, in ways that have major implications for politics and policy. Uh, so that was the main question that we sought out to answer uh, with this book.
0: And and following that up, you you know you note within the sort of introductory section of the book and the. In within within the book throughout that we have this context of polarized of a polarized political system these days in particular, divided government, legislative gridlock, and so forth. But that congressional investigative power supersedes or at least comes to operate many times instead of congressional legislative capacity. Um, how does this also reflect the shifts in the roles powers? and positions of the legislative and executive branches in our constitutional system.
1: Sort of to focus a little bit maybe on the polarization aspect of it, basically, we tried to answer three separate questions in the book. The first is Congress has this power. Uh, I think we'll talk about it later. It's not explicitly in the Constitution, but in the very first Congress, it articulated this power. Uh, it's been established since then, but it, just because it has it doesn't mean that Congress will always use it. So we wanted to ask, under what conditions will Congress actually use this investigative power to push back against executive branch misconduct, abuse, um, <clears throat> sort of pushing? Uh, the second question is, how might it matter uh, through what mechanisms might investigations, which don't have the force of law, like when you're passing legislation, might actually affect politics? And then finally, we wanted to look for concrete evidence of, of changes in politics and policy. So the polarization aspect, I think, really comes in on the first end. Um, throughout 100 plus years of congressional history, we find that Congress uses its power to superintend the executive more in divided government than in unified government, something we might expect, although a little bit uh, against the Mayhew finding uh, in divided we govern. But this is particularly true in periods of intense partisan polarization. Uh, So because we have such a long time series, we're able to look at uh, the late 19th and early 20th centuries in a period of intense polarization, then a period of relatively low polarization and a period of growing and uh, particularly intense polarization now. And so we can see that, especially in the House of Representatives, uh, investigations have essentially become a feature only of divided government. The Senate has always been a little bit different. Uh, and I think we see this reflected really clearly in what's going on with the Russian investigation now, where Burr and Warner seem to at least have some sort of established modus operandi. And the House has turned it into the investigation into Russia, into a war against the Department of Justice and the FBI. So. Uh, it sort of holds up quite well with uh, with recent patterns.
0: Yeah, I was I was going to ask you a little bit later on about the current investigation, and it it seems to so, uh, we can bracket it, <laughs> it, it seems to sort of prove your point, um, but I was I also am, I'm really impressed by the sort of early going in the book because you go through the sort of absence of this hour in Article One of the Constitution. But you and Eric do an amazing job sort of filling in the evolution of this power and how it's been codified and how it's changed over time, this investigative power and to some degree, this oversight. Can you go through that a bit in terms of where where it first came from, as you say, in the early Congress and then how it's shifted and changed and mutated um, over time?
1: Sure. So um- – critically, the first investigation happens early in the Washington administration. Uh, It's over the Sinclair expedition. Uh, It's one of the, I think it's the costliest, uh, I don't know if this would be the right phrase, but Indian massacre, uh, uh, until you hit Custer, a little big one. Uh, So it's a huge problem, a huge defeat. Washington flies into a rage uh, and basically Congress, uh, especially the Democratic Republicans, use this investigation as an opportunity to bash some leading federalists uh, within the administration. The power is nowhere in Article 1. Oftentimes we talk about things like executive orders and executive agreements and memoranda, and national security decision directives that aren't in Article 2, but presidents have developed them, articulated them, courts have codified them, uh, and it's led to an expansion of executive power. Certainly that's true, but here's one where it's a a non-enumerated power Congress debated whether or not, really, should the legislature have a role in superintending the executive branch like this, or should it be up to the executive? Is this a a checks and balance that's good, or is it a violation of separation of powers? Uh, They decided that they should be able to investigate, so they requested information from the executive branch. Uh, And Washington, on the flip side, has this debate within his cabinet as well. To what extent is executive branch information private? Uh, Is there such a thing as executive privilege? They decided that there was such a thing as executive privilege. But in this instance, all of the information that Congress had requested would not be covered as such. And it was fine to turn over those documents. So debates that we had throughout Watergate, throughout the current crisis, they really did emerge very uh, early on over this investigative power and what the proper uh, boundaries between the two branches was. So uh, it sort of evolved uh, since. On an interesting course,
0: <laughs> and and I, I mean, your impressive footnotes um, are really half the story in that early going chapter as well. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, so, following up though, also on one of the comments that you that you made um, to another question, um, Congress's attempt essentially to change the narrative, or the to harness the power of the narrative. Um, with regard to the executive branch um, is is here sort of uh, more articulated or sort of it, it has more capacity to do this than oftentimes in its legislative capacity and that's one of the things that you sort of talk about in terms of you know the the sort of spheres of power and how Congress's power to um, limit per presidential aggrandizement um, is really also, it's it's working in a, in a zone to, in fact, influence policy. Can you talk a little bit about that in context of the book?
1: At one point in the book, we, we explore a couple of different pathways through which uh, investigations have in the past affected policy outcomes. And sometimes an investigation really does create the pressure that's needed to Overcome all of the institutional hurdles that prevent Congress from acting to get them over the finish line and, and to enact new legislation. For example, the Church Committee, uh, very controversial even at its in its day, right? Uh, big questions about state secrets uh, versus the public's right to know. But because of the pressure generated by that investigation and all of the revelations that it makes uh, that it makes public, it leads to some pretty significant uh, pieces of legislation: the creation. Uh, of the Senate, first of the Senate, and then later of the House uh, Intelligence Committees. Uh, It contributes to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which, again, very relevant for what we're talking about right now. Um, So I don't think any of that stuff would have passed if you had taken the Church Committee investigation out of the context. But much more generally, uh, does an investigation have to lead to legislation for it to be impactful? Uh, We don't think so. Uh, and instead it's, I think one of the key things that investigations do is exactly what you mentioned. It sort of, it changes the narrative. It's an opportunity for Congress to, uh, push back against the white house's endeavored agenda control and instead to sort of shine a public light, uh, on aspects of policy or administration action or behavior that the administration would really prefer the press not focus on. In that respect, I love Mayhew's, uh, shoot, sorry, there was the, (laughs) the, uh, Thing you told me to try and turn off, so obviously that's I great. failed there. But I love Mayhew's phrase for investigations. He calls them publicity probes, and that's exactly what they are, right? Investigations are meant to try and capture headlines, to capture attention, uh, to generate buzz around these charges, and to encourage then journalists and others to continue their own inquests and investigations into what the administration is doing. Uh, with the prime battle, oftentimes being waged not on the floor or even in the committee room itself but in the court of public opinion.
0: Yeah and and that's again one of the the aspects of what you're sort of analyzing in the book that I find really fascinating is we don't you know we talk about watching the sausage being made or not in terms of legislation that Congress creates or tries to create. But when you're sort of looking at this role of investigation and possibly reaction to presidential overreach or aggrandizement, it really does become a a mechanism that Congress doesn't otherwise have to focus a spotlight um, on something that Congress is doing that people then pay attention to in part possibly because it's salacious, blue dresses notwithstanding, um, but also because it is, as you say, a mechanism to also attract media attention to um, the narrative that Congress or perhaps a party in Congress wants to articulate and enunciate. Um, So my next question is that the book explores congressional investigative powers through a number of different perspectives and, of course, methodological approaches. And you also noted this large data set that you and Eric assembled. Can you ex- sort of sketch out what approaches the book takes up with regard to the methodology that you use and also you know, what you were doing in terms of integrating the information into your data set?
1: So to build the data set, um, all the congressional hearings are available on uh, ProQuest Congressional Universe, which I think is now LexisNexis Congressional. Um, it, migrated midway through the project, uh, or sort of towards the end of it. So I can't remember exactly which one it was, but you get this huge database out there. And then the question is, how do you pick out from all of those hearings, which ones could be plausibly, um, investigations? So we take our definition of investigation, basically straight from Mayhew, uh, you know, an allegation of misconduct or abuse of power by any actor within the executive branch. so we started off just trying to develop some search terms that would give us that would give us some leverage in cutting down, uh, getting into a more tractable number of hearings that we would actually then have to go and look at the specific content and uh, code whether or not it meets that definition of investigation or not. So we refined these over time through a number of different searches, making sure that sort of the early uh, uh, hits that were catching all the things that we knew were out there, Uh, In periods where we had done some research to try and compile this in other ways. Then, once we did it, we sort of ran this initial hit. It returned thousands and thousands and thousands of hits. Uh, And then we had a team of coders uh, that had coding rules for what they were looking for, did the standard intercoder coder reliability checks. And from that, tried to identify every hearing uh, in that data set that referred to something that would be a a charge of executive misconduct or abuse. Uh, Then, from that, we have the actual hits. We have the days in which each of these hearings were held. and So uh, we thought the the fairest metric would probably be the number of days of hearings that Congress held in which they're investigating a a charge of misconduct. And so that's the the dependent variable in the first set of analyses in the book, trying to understand what factors drive variation in Congress's use of this power. Uh, Then it becomes an independent variable in the second section of the book where we wanted to more formally test this idea, can publicity probes or investigations that are meant to really play out uh, in the public, do they actually move public opinion? Uh, One of the big problems is of course the endogeneity that almost certainly exists in the relationship. Uh, It could be that members of Congress investigate the president and it hurts him politically. It could also be that a unpopular president is a much more, uh, palatable punching bag uh, than one who's uh, riding high in the polls. The Clinton uh, years notwithstanding. I guess, as Republicans didn't shy away. Uh, but so we try to look at specific ways uh, to model that endogeneity and to account for it in a large end analysis. And then uh, we supplemented it with a number of experiments that look, uh, that sort of can help us with some causal identification and also just some questions asking people's views of the investigative power. Uh, this is at a time when we were running these on um, uh, the CCS when Congress's approval rating was probably in the low teens to high single digits and sort of does it does it even make sense that people would care if Congress holds an investigation and what was interesting to us is that it didn't matter if we sort of gave we asked a generic question you know about congress support for congressional investigations we also had some split samples there in which we mentioned primarily investigations of republican presidents and primarily investigations of democratic presidents and across all different specifications there was strong support for the use of the investigative power so knitting all of these different pieces together uh, we think the the sum of, of the part uh, the sum of the whole was stronger than maybe any individual part and that it really does strongly suggest that congr- when Congress investigates uh, that it really does pack a political punch and it can hurt the president standing among
0: and, and, and that's, I mean, again, what the sort of – not surprisingly unearthing, but sort of articulating that this power is really useful and potentially impressive power that Congress has that Congress itself doesn't always think about in that way um, because it's not sketched out in Article 1 as here are your powers. Uh and so one of my questions that, that follows this up for those who are interested in reading the book is you, you do lay out not only the sort of the, the data that you, you know, sort of accumulated and integrated into, um, this very large, data set, but also you you talk about sort of case studies and historical dimensions. Can you lay out a little bit for listeners the sort of structure of the book itself um, and how you trace your, essentially your premise and then your conclusion through the chapters?
1: Sure. Uh, So we start off with just laying out the basic argument that Congress is at an institutional uh, disadvantage when it's trying to push back against assertions of presidential power. Especially when it tries to use its legislative powers, and so that is one of the main reasons that the argument is is so strong that the pendulum of power has undoubtedly swung towards the executive branch, which it has. Uh, but what we want to argue is that investigations at least give Congress some capacity to push back, uh, because it's much easier for Congress to use that investigative power uh, than it is for it to use its legislative powers, uh, and so it offers this opportunity. So. That's where we start off, then in uh, the next chapter, we introduce our large data dataset, uh, how we go about collecting it, and just start looking at trends in investigative activity over time and trying to understand what factors drive the variation. So we look at uh, the main thing here, of course, being unified and divided government, but also how those change uh, in times of, uh, of polarization or high or low polarization. Uh, We also look at other factors, wars, uh, the state of the economy, uh, other types of structural factors that might matter as well to try and really get a handle on under what conditions investigations do bolster congressional power and under what conditions investigations are relatively unlikely to have all that much of an influence. Uh, So having done that, we move on into looking at the effect of investigations on presidential approval. Uh, So for this, uh, we use some time series analysis, we use some experiments and some other survey work. And then from there, we really want to move on to our ultimate goal, which is trying to see if we can show the effects of investigations on concrete policy outcomes. Uh, And so to do this, we first talk about a couple of different pathways through which uh, investigations might matter. And a lot of this is supplemented with case studies to sort of illustrate how it can work. So as I mentioned, in some cases, like the church committee, you see an investigation happens. It, it helps lower all the barriers to Congress acting uh, through legislation, and it leads to the enactment of, of new uh, statutes to try and address some of the problems that are raised by the church committee. Other times, uh, an investigation may encourage the president to preemptively uh, make some concessions. The church committee is another example here. So, uh, President Ford knows that investigators are coming after him. There's pressure building. And so he issues a series of executive orders that are trying to fund up, to reform aspects of the intelligence agencies to preempt more extreme change coming from Congress. Uh, and then perhaps most importantly, if all that investigations do is affect change in the specific policy area that's being investigated, then it may have investigations may have influence but it would be relatively limited, right? The scope of public attention, uh, congressional time resources are finite. Uh, And so of all of the areas in which executives might be pushing uh, on policy, Congress can only investigate a very small few. So then what we wanted to know is, is it possible that investigations in one sphere that are politically damaging to the president may affect the president's strategic calculations in other areas of policy that are completely unrelated to the investigation itself. Uh, one of the problems again here is trying to come up with uh, what types of presidential actions are not endogenous to these types of considerations of domestic politics. Uh, and so here we tried to exploit um, the as if exogenous nature of uh, foreign crises. So we use the Howe and PV House opportunities to use force data set, Uh, We take sort of their standard model with their focus on uh, uh, congressional measures of congressional composition, and we say congressional composition tells you something, right? Uh, If the opposition party is stronger, you might anticipate greater pushback from Congress, and so you're less likely to use force. That's the main, uh, in response to an opportunity that arises in the international environment. That's their main argument. Uh, We say that's true. Uh, And the partisan composition of Congress provides an important signal for presidents, but recent investigative activity may provide an even clearer signal. Uh, If Congress has been investigating you and pushing back at things that they argue are misconduct or abuse of power, uh, that tells you that Congress is very likely to do so again in the future should things not go well or should you act uh, contra their preferences and the rest. And so we use that data set to try and see if this is the case and find some pretty significant evidence of it uh, that presidents use force much less uh, frequently, all else being equal, uh, after periods in which they've been heavily and intensely investigated by the executive branch. And I think you can see this in some of the case studies as well, where previous congressional uh, investigations, presidents freely acknowledge that they have those on their minds uh, when they're opting not Uh, to do certain types of actions that they could probably get away with. Congress would be unable to check them legislatively, uh, but politically they anticipate serious costs uh, from a a Congress that might use that investigative power again.
0: So is this now becoming a sort of embedded function of the way Congress is just going to do business going forward?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, We're in an intensely polarized era. Uh, If you have the return of divided government in 2018 or in 2020 uh, i think that it's going to just be a pretty common feature uh, of our political system and it can you know uh, it can have pretty big payoffs even when they don't seem immediately apparent right so consider the benghazi probe of course right so this is a probe that uh, failed Once, failed twice, failed again. One of the longest investigations in congressional history. No one really cared. It seemed about it for a lot of it. And then they find the little proverbial nugget of gold, right? They find that Hillary Clinton used a private email server. If it had not been for the Benghazi uh, investigation, we never would have known that. Uh, And how might history have played out differently had it not been so? So the benefits uh, to investigators are really steep. And it may be that sort of the days of investigations triggering bigger policy changes in Congress are, are unlikely uh, in the contemporary polarized environment. But because investigations can ratchet up the political costs on an opposition president, uh, you know, congressional majorities and divided government have strong incentives to use them and use them aggressively.
0: And and it seems as we do have this you know sort of very polarized period and potentially um, divided government or even with united government somewhat divided government it seems sometimes that the the role of investigations is is something that Congress has now embraced in a lot of ways um, that had been more um, sort of uh, sort of elliptical in other periods. Um, so I, I guess I also am curious because we are, you know, every day it's a new discussion of releasing a memo or not releasing a memo or, you know, who's doing what to whom with regard to the investigation in the House, the investigation in the Senate. Um, what does your sort of thesis and the book sort of tell us a little bit about the current investigation into our sitting president?
1: Sure. So I think the House pattern fits the book evidence very well. Uh, so we, when we look at when Congress uses the invest, its investigative power, uh, we find two big things. The House and the Senate are, are quite different from one another. Historically, divided government versus unified government really doesn't have any discernible impact on the intensity or frequency with which Congress uses its investigative power. And sure enough, I think we've seen senate investigations which are relatively fair would it have looked different under democrats of course Uh, in the same way that the republican uh, investigation into whitewater looked very different than the democratic investigation into whitewater but even there the senate was always a little bit fairer a little bit more open because reflecting the greater power of the minority and individual members um you know the senate is a little different the house they circle the wagons in unified government in polarized eras. And, you know, of course, that's exactly what we've seen. I like think they were compelled to do something, uh, but that didn't stop Chairman Nunez from making late night dashes <laughs> to the White House or authoring memos of classified information that he wants to leak or what have you. Uh, and finally, you know, doing what the president asked. If only someone had investigated Crooked Hillary's emails. And, you know, sure enough, we can have some more uh, investigations into that and Justice Department FBI failings as well. So um, the partisan bent in the House is, uh, it's not unusual. It's fun to sort of really pick on Nunez or others, but it fits pretty much uh, hand in glove with the bigger patterns that we've seen uh, over a hundred years of congressional history. Uh, so I think that it's a lot um, uh, of sort of more of the same, nothing new under the sun in that, in that regard.
0: Um, so I guess the, one of my, one of my final questions for you and, and for Eric is, you know, we've talked a little bit about this already, but what generally is the result of congressional investigations of our president or the executive branch? As you note, it doesn't always, you know, end up with a quote smoking gun or the, the missing 18 minutes from the tapes.
1: Yeah. So in the book, um. Uh- we naturally have to speculate a little bit towards the end Uh, as we approach the end of the time series, we've got less data to work with. And so uh, what we can say concretely is a little more limited, but it really does appear that there's been a shift in the type of investigation that we've had uh, over the last few decades uh, to increasingly um, the primary aim of investigations being politically damaging the president. And sometimes, You know, that does result in the smoking gun and it provides pressure towards uh, impeachment or resignation or what have you. And other times it doesn't. Um, But consider Iran-Contra for an example. Iran-Contra, the legislative reaction to Iran-Contra is relatively minor. Uh, It does not lead to charges of impeachment. It does not lead to quite the smoking gun, I guess, maybe it was shredded, hard to say. and it doesn't lead to um, to a resignation. And George H.W. Bush is able to pardon everyone. And so the immediate consequences seem pretty small. Uh, but if you look at Reagan's last two years in office, uh, as Iran-Contra was heating up, he lost a series of really important votes where I think it was uh, fairly widely assumed that he was going to win. Uh, he lost uh, Supreme Court confirmation battles. There was a very significant Political cost to the president being weakened by this ongoing investigation that just seemingly never went away, uh, and you know I think that you know may be the the most common consequence. It's not always the smoking gun is going to lead to the the genuine institutional showdown that we all sometimes are waiting for, but politically weakening the president. Um, has real impacts on policy and and politics more generally uh, that are tangible that we can see uh, consistently over time.
0: And I think that's, you know, I think that's one of the more interesting dynamics that you draw out, that you and Eric draw out in the book is, you know, sort of understanding that an investigation has power, um, even if it's not necessarily going to produce, as you say, an impeachment or indictment, or something to that effect. It it has this power that that you do a great job of mapping out how that has an impact on um, on presidents and, and the executive branch in particular. So, Doug, what are you working on now?
1: Um, so, my latest book project is looking at uh, presidential unilateral power, uh, and so the main argument or the puzzle that I'm trying to solve is. That if we take the sort of standard pivotal politics model as applied to executive action, uh, presidents should have a lot of flexibility to move policy in the gridlock interval. Uh, and many cases they do. But if you look at most measures of executive activity and significant executive activity, uh, I would argue it's the real puzzle is why aren't presidents doing more unilaterally? Think about all of the policies that President Trump Could move closer to his preferences, assuming he had an ideal point, uh, somewhat problematic maybe, Uh, or President Obama, all of the other policies he could have moved left uh, in which he would have been able to sustain a veto of legislation to overturn him. So if it's not an immediate legislative check that holds presidents back, uh, and it's not the threat of court action that always holds them back. Uh, what are these other informal constraints uh, that are keeping them at least somewhat in check and not using executive power, unilateral you know, authority as aggressively as formal theory uh, models might suggest?
0: So, are you in the midst of assembling a data set to that end?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, we, we have a couple <laughs> of different data sets and uh, uh, some. Uh, different uh, public opinion studies, uh, and the rest that are trying to dig into this question a little bit.
0: Cool. So will you come on the New Books Network and talk about it when you finish the book?
1: I hope so. Excellent. (laughs) If I'm invited, I'm there.
0: Of course. Of course. We'll have you back. Um, So, how can some interested person get a copy of Investigating the President, Congressional Checks on Presidential Power?
1: Well, uh, it's available directly through Princeton University Press and also uh, on all of the the major sites, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, even Target I saw, so that was kind of exciting.
0: I did notice that. I I, I was Googling it today, and I saw that it's at Target. So cool. Uh, Thank you for joining me today. Um, And I'm sorry we couldn't have Eric with us as well, but I really appreciate your discussing Investigating the President, Congressional Checks on Presidential Power from Princeton University Press.
1: Thanks so much for inviting us, Lloyd.
0: Sure.